Hi, my name is Sam Fudo, and welcome to the seventh episode of my podcast, Understanding Healthcare. Today, I spoke with Dr. Sean Nicholson, professor in the Department of Policy Analysis and Management and director of the Sloan Program in Health Administration at Cornell University. Dr. Nicholson conducts research in regional variations in health costs, the value of new medical technologies, and incentivizing innovation in healthcare while still preserving affordability, accessibility, and quality of care. I was able to speak with Dr. Nicholson a few years ago, so I'm really excited to meet with him again and talk about the opportunities and challenges in healthcare moving forward. So, here's my conversation with Dr. Sean Nicholson. Uh, Dr. Nicholson, it's great uh, uh, to have you here today. We actually, we met in the past a couple years ago, so it's nice to see you again. Um, in your current role as a professor in the Department of Policy Analysis and Management at Cornell and as director of the uh, Sloan uh, Program in Health Administration, uh, the work you do is really important uh, and has really important implications for the way we pay for care, how we value new technologies, you know, in a way that doesn't harm accessibility uh, and affordability and quality of care, um, and also incentives uh, for greater innovation in pharmaceutical industries, which we're seeing today, most notably uh, uh, in vaccine distribution and companies helping other companies like uh, recently Johnson & Johnson and Merck, um, among others. So again, thank you so much uh, for making the time to be here, and I'm really uh, inspired by your research. So thank you again. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so, so my first question is, uh, what do you believe COVID-19 has shown us about the structure of our healthcare system and, and what changes you know, moving forward do you think will, will prevent sort of bottlenecks in care and ensure sort of adequate resources for all providers? Um, well, one, I think, I mean, a number of things. I think um, one is it's demonstrated the resilience of healthcare providers, the, you know, and the resourcefulness, the ability of, of mostly hospital prof- healthcare professionals to, to pull together and figure out how to, um, as effectively as possible, combat COVID and, and test for COVID. It's sort of uh, you know, given our public health system uh, an opportunity to try to coordinate something on a scale they haven't done before. So obviously it didn't go perfectly, but I think there's been a lot of um, positive successes along the fronts of um, you know, providers um, you know, digging in and o- overcoming just, you know, make, uh, you know, uh, fatalities on a daily basis. I think telehealth has been one of those um, bright spots. I think historically health insurers have uh, strongly resisted paying physicians to treat people remotely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, technically that's been a temporary change. Uh, you know, essentially they're now paying at parity. But I personally think that's going to be a permanent change. I think um, physicians have gotten comfortable. Patients have appreciated the benefits. Obviously, it's not going to entirely replace mm-hmm. and shouldn't face-to-face care. But I think that's going to be one of those changes. And then I think the farm industry has shown um, an ability to innovate and innovate quickly. And it looks like innovate safely. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if they sort of... Um, establish a bit more support because it's not historically an industry that's held in high regard. So um, I think that's been, been a success. So, you know, I would start there, but I think, you know, they're going to need to be programs that predict the next pandemic and provide um, access to, if it's not ventilators, whatever the technology is. So I think there's going to have to be a push to create stockpiles to think about the supply chain, not rely you know, overly heavily on a single country um, for critical supplies. So, so I think some of the lessons have already been kind of put nicely in place. And I think others are going to be, you know, probably between now and the next pandemic um, uh, require some good decision-making. 
Yeah, yeah, and I guess I guess touching on sort of this, uh, you know, you said we might see sort of a permanent change in the telehealth, but not it won't fully replace our face-to-face -face interactions with providers. Um, you know, many changes have been made in healthcare delivery over the past year. You know, going forward, what are your views on how we should sort of balance what we just talked about with the innovation uh, that we need with improved outcomes um, and sort of less of a reliance on you know these physical visits to offices uh, uh, and more sort of care. We're seeing more care meeting patients at home or where they are in a community, you know, for example? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, I think part of it is continuing the shift from um, what's usually referred to as volume-based care and towards more value-based right. care. And, and, and even from value-based care, so, so volume-based, you know, sort of count up what physically what happens and, and pay per, per event. Um, now there's still, that's still the baseline, the, the sort of core, but now there's add-on payments for providers that, that um, are delivering high quality care to go with, um, hopefully uh, efficient care. But I think pushing it more and more towards outcomes. So mm -hmm. rewarding providers for delivering excellent clinical outcomes. So, you know, it, it should give an incentive for a provider. If you're, if you're paying a, a physician, say, for in part, keeping a diabetic from being admitted to a hospital or going to emergency room, if the provider realizes, um, well, geez, a telehealth visit is a very effective way to make sure that someone's uh, blood sugar level is under control and that their diet is, is appropriate, um, you know, they will do that because they want to get it, you know, it's good for the patient, hopefully, but also because they want to get that, that outcome-based mm -hmm. reward of, hey, this patient didn't show up in the hospital for a year, Here's that bonus on top of the um, the fee for service payment. So, I, so you know that doesn't, it, you know that that is speeded along by policy because Medicare and Medicaid often um, set the framework. But a lot of that speeding along is going to be private insurers deciding this is just the right thing to do. Yeah, you know the 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 pandemic has sort of really sort of highlighted the importance of sort of uh, sort of reducing the insurance coverage gap in the country because we're you know we're seeing. Uh, millions of people who maybe weren't hospitalized with COVID, but are going to see these long-term, you know, side effects from COVID that they may want covered in future insurance plans. Um, you know, as we move towards more value-based care and away from fee-for-service, how can insurance providers and consumers, you know, work to seek out care that is more efficient and, in fact, valuable? And how will this impact the way providers operate, uh, you know, as it relates to cost-sharing bundles and, and different payment models? Yeah. You know, I, I think... I think the most important thing is for consumers to become uh, better informed consumers. You know, I, I think, and, and this, you know, this is a, uh, would be an argument I think that conservatives would really embrace. So, so to your point, I think, you know, let's just call the relief bill a democratic bill. And it is definitely providing incentives for more people to, to get insurance coverage, either if they lose their job, the, the government will now pick up their insurance payment, at least for, for the better part of 2021. The, the subsidies on the Affordable Care Act exchanges are going to be more generous. So let's just call that a, a sort of liberal democratic uh, reform. But I think to your point, um, the more knowledgeable uh, a consumer when they're picking a health plan is about saying, well, wait a minute, this plan uh, has a pretty affordable premium, and yet it looks like it's giving me access to a great network of physicians, and those physicians are delivering excellent health outcomes. So I'm going to gravitate towards this health plan. And if you know that happens um, on a scale of, of millions of customers, 
then that health insurer is going to say, oh, I get it. Now when I'm delivering a high value product, you know, relatively low premium, relatively high outcomes, I get rewarded by gaining market share. It, 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 the more that happens, the more the insurers are going to um, uh, start figuring out what actually provides the best healthcare for the, for the dollar. Yeah, and I, I was reading over a, 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 a paper you co-authored in the past year or so on, uh, you know, looking at the trend of healthcare becoming more uh, consumer oriented. Um, and it, it, there was a great analogy about, uh, um, about, you know, banks and how they have evolved over time, uh, 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 tax uh, services like TurboTax, and then how healthcare is sort of just like sort of uh, uh, chained back by these, the, the, the system that we're in. We can't really get out of you know, you go to see your uh, primary care provider every year for your checkup, you know, or this or that, but we can't get out of the system because we're just, it's a fundamental, like a foundational system. Whereas in banks, we went from, you know, bank physical people, bank tellers to ATMs to, you know, we're digital transactions, uh, things like TurboTax, obviously in the tax realm. Um, you know, as we, as we talk about the need to, as we, we have, to, I, I, I think what it touched on was we have to acknowledge the breadth of healthcare, right? And it's not just this simple interaction between physician and patient one time at the, you know, in this office, you know, there. Um, and so I guess, you know, what changes need to be made so that, you know, we can see these big leaps in, you know, accessibility, affordability and quality, you know, even though we're not at, you know, there isn't this maybe ability to evolve like in banks or in taxes and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think part of it to, to revisit a, a topic from earlier is this move towards value-based care that, um, because, you know, not only do we have to recognize, as you point out, that healthcare is not just a single interaction, it's a, it's a dynamic um, service, um, but it's, healthcare is also incredibly labor intensive. Mm -hmm. And so um, if you think about ATMs and banks, I mean, that led to a big productivity improvement in banking but productivity improvement is code for labor reduction. Um, you know, there, there are fewer people working for banks now than before because so many of us bank on our own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's, you know, I think subtly and subconsciously, I think there are healthcare professionals who resist some technological advances because they don't want to lose their job. I mean, they, they, they might be couching things in terms of, well, um, how do we know that a, you know, a software program can actually help a, a diabetic control their blood sugar. Um, but, you know, deep down they're thinking, um, geez, that's gonna reduce the need for physicians and nurses if people can, can diagnose themselves and treat themselves. Um, but if in value-based care, there's gonna be stronger incentives for providers mm -hmm. to say, well, wait a minute. Um, if there's some things that aren't that interesting for a physician to do that could be done just as well by a bot, um, then let's do that. And then mm -hmm. the physician can focus on all the really interesting things that can't be uh, replaced by, by technology. So, so, you know, it's not a panacea, but I think when you tell the physician, look, 30, 40% of your income is going to be based on um, the health outcomes you're delivering and the price at which you're doing that, they're going to say, well, now I think there is a role for bots. Mm -hmm. And if it does lead to less employment, it doesn't necessarily lead to, to, less, um, to less income, say, for the, for the decision maker. That's not going to, you know, that, that doesn't, you know, less employment is, is obviously bad for the person who lost their job. 
But it is what economists would say is, is structural unemployment, that sometimes that's necessary for people to reorient towards professions that, that haven't been replaced by technology. And ultimately that kind of reassignment of people to, to long-term tasks is a good thing for the economy, even though it obviously creates uh, trauma for the person who has to do the reorienting. Yeah, and, I, and, and you know, the, the paper sort of touched on that because it's like, you know, originally we would think, you know, uh, the, the more care you think you need, the more personnel you, you, you are, are going to need. Um, and so, you know, as I said earlier, we're sort of limited by the system we're in, you know, the, many of the insurance plans we're talking about are, you know, the payment models, you know, they focus on specific, you know, you're going to have this care done at this location or by this provide, you know, this provider. Um, I, I guess moving forward, you know, what, what uh, opportunities or, or challenges, in fact, do you see in, in making healthcare more accessible? You know, I'm thinking of the broad use we talked about earlier of telehealth and, and sort of that be, uh, was a temporary at first, it's become more, uh, more permanent in, in the ways that CMS has sort of valued it. Um, but also the increased use of home care rather than inpatient care, health, you know, obviously healthcare organizations are sort of, uh, you know, where they once thought maybe they would be investing right now more in inpatient services or actually investing more in outpatient services right now. Um, so I guess, you know, if we can't structurally change the way care is provided, are there any other ways to increase uh, uh, the value of care so that both patients and providers, uh, you know, don't see exorbitant costs, but are better, better positioned and in fact incentivized to participate in more efficient care? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th this is not a, a, a complete answer, but I think I'll, I'll give an example. I think, you know, right now every state licenses physicians in that state and licenses, um, say, what a nurse practitioner can do or a physician assistant can do, um, which really doesn't make a lot of sense. There's there's no reason why what what a what a nurse practitioner can do in North Carolina should be different than what a nurse practitioner can do in, in Ohio. Um, and there's really no reason why each state should be licensing physicians. So if the federal government um, was licensing health professionals, dictating you know, who can prescribe, mm -hmm. who can actually administer anesthesia, how, to what extent does the anesthesiologist have to be overseeing a, a certified registered nurse anesthetist, and to what extent can that anesthetist um, practice independently? What I think that would do is enable more skill mix, skill mix changes. And so that's, that's the punchline for me is the, you know, if we're going to have a physician shortage, if physicians are the most expensive part of the healthcare system, we'll figure out, you know, what a, a physician assistant who receives two years of education post, uh, you know, post BA and not the, the nine years of a physician, what can they do under the supervision of a physician that can enable a physician to, to manage, you know, two or three physician assistants. Uh, and, so I think, you know, basically having the each person practicing, as they say, at the top of his or her license so that, you know, the physician is doing things only a physician can do. The nurse practitioner is doing things that they're perfectly capable of doing if supervised appropriately by a physician. That's going to reduce the, the average cost of medical care. And that can be enabled, I think, by a simpler licensing and oversight system um, that's not state run, it's federally federally run. Yeah, and, and sort of the, the paper we just talked about touched on this, where it's like you have, uh, you know, the front line, the second line, the third line, you know, maybe every time you go to the, you know, the, the, the healthcare provider, you don't have to see the physician first, you can see the physician assistant and the nurse first, 
then if you know depending on whatever the needs are it, it, it you know elevates from there uh, which is you know it's sort of strategic incentivizing for the care for the greatest value um uh you know uh, second last question um we sort of have been getting to this it's a very broad question but as we talk about maximizing affordability, accessibility, and, and quality of care moving forward, while still you know making sure to invest in in you know innovation moving forward uh, to proactively solve today and tomorrow's problems, that you know as we've seen, you know it's really important to invest in things like you know infectious disease prevention or public health and things like this moving forward. Um, are there any policies either in place or or proposed that you think would make a difference in this regard? Um, well, I mean, I think. You know, I think there are proposals on both sides of the political aisle to reduce prescription drug prices. Um, and, you know, there, there's disagreement about what the mechanism would be, but there's actually quite a bit of commonality. I think both Democrats and Republicans think that prescription drug prices are too high and that they should be lower. Um, and, and I think what's implicit in both of those proposals um, is that the incentives to innovate are sufficiently strong in the pharmaceutical industry, and you'd still have innovation even if prices were a little bit lower. So I think, yes. you know, I think in terms of sort of the scale of impact on innovation, I think if prescription drug prices in the U.S. are driven down, um, it could save a lot of money. And I think the huge question is, would there in fact be a reduction in innovation or not? Most empirical studies would say, yes, there will be a reduction of, of innovation, less spending on R&D, and, and I would agree with that. The thing that's really hard to predict is, um, you know, how meaningful will that be to the typical patient? And would there be things not developed that otherwise would have been developed that lots of people would care about? Um, so I think that's, uh, I think that's one of them, you know, there's other things that are sort of more, um, uh, kind of niche, like the orphan drug act. Uh, I think a lot of people think that that is working too well, that there's too strong of an incentive for pharmaceutical firms to, um, to develop drugs for conditions that don't affect that many patients. So, so in some sense, that was a policy success in the eighties. Um, that now people are like, well, maybe it was too successful. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't have half of all drugs being approved, being drugs that that have fewer than two hundred thousand people in the U.S. who have that disease. Um, so that that policy could be ratcheted back, but that wouldn't have the scale um, as the, the 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 prescription drug pricing proposals that I mentioned earlier. Those are examples. I think you know th th there are other pockets and right. policies that would have sort of a similar. Um, trade-off of cost savings versus impact on innovation. Hmm. Uh, last question, uh, you know, for, for young people who are interested in, you know, health policy and management, you know, what advice would you give based on, you know, your career and, and the work you do? And are there any specific things, you know, they should focus on uh, as healthcare changes so rapidly before our eyes, um, especially in the past year? And I guess also, I guess, well, in that, you know, sort of reflect on, you know, why did you choose to go into health policy management and what motiv motivates you to do the work that you do? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start with the second part of the question, then I'll go back to the first. Um, you know, honestly, I stumbled into healthcare. Uh, I was a senior, uh, senior at Dartmouth College, and all of a sudden it was time for corporate recruiting. Hey, time for me to get a job. Um, and it just so turned out, you know, somehow I told myself I want to be a consultant. I don't really know why I said that. Um, and the only consulting firm that hired me was a consulting firm that, that focused on consulting to hospitals. 
So I had no innate interest in healthcare. I wasn't repelled by it, but I wasn't drawn to it. Um, but four years of working in healthcare, I just became fascinated by the way in which physicians and hospitals interacted in this sort of odd non-employment relationship. At least that was true at the time. Um, and then it just kind of built. Like once I knew something about healthcare, that was my comparative advantage. <laughs> um, so, so it was a combination of it's a complicated industry. So once you sort of understand it, you never fully understand it, you have an advantage. Plus, I just found it incredibly interesting. But I think, you know, I think what draws a lot of people to healthcare who are more thoughtful, frankly, than I was, is it's an opportunity to have a very um, vibrant professional career, including a, you know, a well-paying career, if that's something that you want, while you're also doing important, impactful things that, that help people's lives. Um, now, I'm not saying every single day, every single person has that experience, but I think a lot of people in healthcare feel very good at the end of the day about how they helped um, support people who are delivering uh, healthcare. So I'm talking about non-clinicians, you know, someone who's, who's the chief operating officer of, of, a, of a hospital often feels very good at the end of the day because they helped the physicians provide excellent care uh, to patients. And so, you know, he or she is well-paid, but also feels very good about what they're doing. You know, there's, there's a lot of advice I could impart, but maybe to sort of keep it simple, um, try to figure out what part of healthcare is most interesting. And I think something that's, um, you know, much more of an opportunity now than it was 10, 20 years ago is, find some startup firm that seems to be doing something that you're really passionate about. And as a young person, just go work for that startup firm. You know, the chances are that firm is not going to make it, but you will learn a ton. You will get a lot of responsibility. They may be the next big thing, um, but you, you will you know, learn valuable skills and great, get great experiences that positions you for that next uh, next job. And, you know, your generation is, uh, is going to be shifting around from company to company much more than my generation did. Um, Dr. Sean Nicholson, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, hopefully we can meet again sometime in the next uh, couple months, but really it uh, means a lot uh, for you making time today. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I hope this interview was insightful and highlighted some of the most important issues we face throughout the COVID-19 pandemic in addition to healthcare more long-term as we try to balance rewarding innovation, which has been key in getting out of the pandemic, most notably in vaccine development, with the cost of care for patients and making sure care is affordable, accessible, and high quality. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it and hope you're doing well and staying safe. Remember, we can't just consume healthcare. We have to understand healthcare.